This is where Dave and I plan this year's company holidays. Let's go through the list. Easter, too religious. St. Patrick's Day? Too white. Mother's Day? Way too cisgendered. All of your usual holidays have been canceled this year. But we still have Karl Marx's birthday! <laughs> Need a real reason to party? Find a new job at redballoon.work. The Public Order Emergency Commission released their final report this past Friday, February the 17th. And as we anticipated, it appears that the commission has defended and supported this. In order to ensure the security and continuing stability, the Republic will be reorganized into the first galactic empire for a safe and secure society. This is how liberty dies, with thunderous applause. Under the guise of a safe and secure society, yes, it appears that liberty has been dealt a decisive blow this weekend. Friends, it's a dark day in Canadian history, quite possibly one of the darkest. I was in Ottawa this past Saturday. Several friends and I stood there exactly one year ago when police forces ended the Freedom Convoy with brutish force. So this past Saturday was an emotional day for me, especially with the final report from the POEC coming out on Friday. But as I got to interview those young, brave Save Canada lads, I was reminded of the word of our Lord in Mark 4. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. We will keep fighting, friends. We will keep building. We will keep planting seeds. And God will be faithful to give the growth. It's February 21st. I'm Andrew DiBartolo. That's Matt Halleck. And this is the Liberty Dispatch. Welcome to the Liberty Dispatch, broadcasting across enemy lines into the Canadian culture war. Thank you so much again for joining us. If you could, please interact with our content by subscribing, liking, rating, reviewing, and leaving a comment wherever you're getting our content from. We would encourage you to do that. You can get our content on the FLF Network. That's flfnetwork.com, and that stands for Fight, Laugh, Feast. They also have a wonderful, super very cool handy app where you can get our content on demand as well over there. So we would suggest you do that at your Google, Google app or your Apple app stores, uh, respectively. That way you can get us on demand. Also, you can check out all things Liberty Coalition Canada at libertycoalitioncanada.com. 
Com. That's our handy website. You can go over there, check it all out, our legal analysis, our news and commentary, and our various initiatives as well. Also, be sure, if you would, to sign up to our email uh, list and also to, if you could, please prayerfully consider leaving a donation at the top of the page there, going over to libertycoalitioncanada.com slash donate, or yes indeed scanning that handy qr code at the bottom of the page that helps us continue to build uh this institution and fight for the liberties of canadians and to push back against the insane mainstream media narrative that really led to a lot of the nonsense that we saw take place during this freedom convoy and so much of the horrible information that was spread also if you would like to reach us directly if you would like to just contact us at the podcast be sure to go to mailbag at libertycoalitioncanada.com that's mailbag at libertycoalitioncanada.com which you see there at the bottom of the screen also if you do want to reach out to us um, about giving if you have any questions related to that, give at libertycoalitioncanada.com. And also, we we get so many people reaching out to us about, hey, I want to find a solid church at this time. I want to find a community of believers to get involved with. Can you help me do that? So we can do that, and we do do that. So reach out to us at churches at libertycoalitioncanada.com with those various requests. We do love to see so many people want to get active in that um, in, in those communities, and, and that's really encouraging. Andrew, it's a dark day. Mm -hmm. It is, and, um, you know, we're, we're going to be talking a lot about the Public Order Emergency Commission final report. We actually have two guests who will be joining us on the episode today, two very different guests with very different perspectives and involved in very different ways during the Freedom Convoy to talk about what they saw and to also give commentary about the final report. And so for our audience today, we want to ask you, what were your thoughts on the final report from the Public Order Emergency Commission? And other than saying, I didn't like it, it was a very bad, no good thing, that's correct, we all agree. Specifically, was there something in the report, something that was said either by Justice Rouleau or the response that, that you, you say, this was particularly egregious, this representation or this claim that was made was false, it was inflammatory? You know, What were your thoughts on the actual report and quickly again i'll just say uh because we want to keep making sure that we're clear about things for uh donations only donations that are made to the analysis shows arm of our our, our work is eligible for a charitable receipt and all those donations have to be made payable to christian week so checks have to be made payable to christian week as our partner in media who is producing our shows and when you go online, it's very easy. You click on analysis shows. Any online donations are automatically taken care of. Any e-transfers, you have to make sure you put Christian Week in the comments or the notes. And it's only donations for the analysis shows made to Christian Week that are eligible for a charitable receipt. All other donations to our legal work or advocacy are ineligible for charitable receipts. 
just so we all are clear about that. So speaking about uh, a dark day and 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 an awful segue, thinking about a dark roast, which I'm actually drinking this morning. I'm drinking a delicious <laughs> dark roast. Indeed, as am many I. of you as many of you might know at this point, our friends over at Resistance Coffee have decided to close up shop. Now, this is not because business and support were bad. It's actually the opposite, but it's because responsibilities at church and work have been growing and require more time and energy. The guys over at Resistance, this was a little bit of a side part-time thing, and it continued to grow, but their responsibilities, either serving as a pastor or church or in other jobs, business has been good, has been growing, and so they have decided that they need to wrap up their Resistance Coffee business. So now is your last chance to stock up on delicious coffee before it is gone for good. I highly recommend you head over to resistancecoffee.com slash LCC and place all your orders before March the 2nd. They will be fulfilling all their orders up until March the 2nd. And if you haven't done so yet, if you've been someone who's been drinking terrible coffee and you've been on the fence for a while, make sure you use that slash LCC so you will get 10% off your first and probably last purchase as well at Resistance Coffee. Check out their merch as well. Their shirts are all discounted. Uh, these guys have been good to us at Liberty Coalition Canada for years now. Even before we partnered with them, they were giving a portion of their proceeds to us in support of the work that we were doing. So head over to resistancecoffee.com slash LCC. In fact, as a part of the coalition launching in March, our subscription-based club, Anyone who signs up after the coalition goes live, which we'll be announcing in several weeks, for the first few weeks that we are live, people who subscribe and sign up will get a limited run roast, Freedom Fuel. And uniquely, it's roasted by our friends over at Resistance Coffee. It is a Nicaraguan blend that they've never used before. So it's as limited as they come. All the more reason for you to join the coalition and be thankful for our friends over at Resistance Coffee. So that'll be coming soon. You'll get a super limited roast that they are doing for us as a little bit of a final goodbye present and thank you to the work we do. But for now, head over to resistancecoffee.com slash LCC. Get 10% off your first and last order and make sure you stock up on that coffee before March the second as believe you me i am going to do just that as we said during the lead-in the public order emergency commission has revealed has given us its final report and we have links to the report it's in five volumes and the volumes mm -hmm. are massive hundreds of pages yes and i've read through not all of it because it's uh it's, it's a lot it's, of work. It, it's a lot of work, and it's a lot. It's a lot of fluff, and I'll be honest. There's a lot of propaganda. It's a lot of outright denial of clear testimony and affirming of testimony and witnesses that were debunked. And so it's a difficult read to go through it and say, "Wait a minute, no, 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 that wasn't the case at all." I know that wasn't the case because that that particular testimony was flipped on its head. Mm -hmm. um, so we need to, I guess, we'll set it up a bit. We'll do a little bit of history so that we can get to today and give give the time that's needed. On January 28th, 2022, the first trucks made their way into Ottawa for the Freedom Convoy. 
on February 14th, after two weeks of refusing to meet with a single convoy organizer to discuss the terms of their protest. Not a single elected official would meet with anyone from the convoy to discuss why they were there and what they wanted to see change. Our prime tyrant, Justin Trudeau, invoked the War Measures Act the first time that it wasn't during an actual war or during the kidnapping and killing of political figures. That's what he did. The Public Order Emergency Commission began its public hearings into the invoking of the act on October 13th, 2022, and the hearings concluded on November 28th of the same year. This past Friday, again, February 17th, 2023, exactly one year after the Freedom Convoy protests were crushed by police forces under the authority of the War Measures Act, the POEC submitted its final report. Here is Commissioner Rulo, a liberal appointed judge, with his decision. They wish to exercise their fundamental right to express their political views, and they had a right to do so. Indeed. However, did. like any large group, there were a diversity of views and intentions among the participants of the Freedom Convoy. Amongst the many who intended to protest peacefully were others who had more sinister goals or who were willing to engage in dangerous conduct to achieve their desired ends. Like the Prime the Minister. The that I discuss in my report, what began as a massive protest evolved into something entirely unpre unprecedented, an occupation nope. of the core of the nation's capital. False. After careful reflection, I have concluded that the very high threshold required for the invocation of the act was met. In particular, for reasons that I discuss in detail in the report, I have concluded that when the decision was made to invoke the act on February 14, 2022, cabinet had reasonable grounds to believe that there existed a national emergency arising from threats to the security of Canada that necessitated the taking of special temporary measures. I do not come to this conclusion easily, as I do not consider the factual basis for it to be overwhelming. <laughs> Reasonable and informed people could reach a different conclusion than the one I have arrived at. Now, so before we hold on, have it in for now, before we, we're going to we have a lot to say, but before we do, we quickly want to hear the response from our newly crowned dictator. This is what he had to say about this. The work of the commission and everyone involved was very important, not only to better understand what happened a year ago, but to have a roadmap going forward for any future government. Uh-oh. Today, the Public Order Emergency Commission stated that the very high threshold to invoke the Emergencies Act was met. He found that what we experienced last year was a national emergency that threatened the security of Canadians. Our job as a government is always to keep people safe, and invoking the Emergencies Act was the necessary thing to do to remove the threat and to protect people. Lawful protests descended into lawlessness, culminating 
in a national emergency. Streets were blockaded in our capital city for weeks, nope. causing serious harm to families and small businesses. The situation was volatile and out of control. The Emergencies Act provided us with more tools to safely bring the illegal blockades and occupations to an end. Let's be clear. We didn't want to have to invoke the Emergencies Act. Oh, yeah, sure. It's a measure of last resort. <laughs> but the risk to personal safety, the risk to livelihoods, those risks were real. There you have it. I, man, I hate to listen to that man talk. I know. You know what? There was originally view from his mouth, and it was a like, longer. It was a longer clip, and I'm like, I just, how can I get just the necessary garbage out to not have to listen to more than we need to? Um, let me just let, let's. Here's the basic takeaway from the POEC. These are some of Justice Rouleau's conclusions. Quote, for these reasons, I've concluded that cabinet was reasonably concerned that the situation it was facing was worsening and at risk of becoming dangerous and unmanageable. There was credible and compelling evidence supporting both a subjective and objective reasonable belief in the existence of a public order emergency. The decision to invoke the act was appropriate. I've concluded that in this case, the very high threshold for invocation was met. In my view, there was credible and compelling information supporting a reasonable belief that the definition of threat to the security of Canada was met. Now, Matt, I'm going to I'm going to let you take a big old swing at this because there is much to say and much to comment. But first, this is the kind of mood I am in after this decision. <laughs> a slime he is a slime <laughs> if he's allowed to go free then something really wrong is going on Kirkland, you are out of order you're out of order you're out of order the whole trial is out of order they're out of order that man that's crazy oh that's my mood matt that's my mood today and you can be forgiven for having that mood because I think anybody who's taken time, it like there's so much verbiage. There's so, so many words. The report's quite long. Even the executive summary is broken down into three sections that would reading at, you know, a very significant speed that would probably take you a day to read. Right. Um, there's so much information that we have to digest, but I think you can be forgiven for having that um, reaction because what we saw with the the public order emergency commission is we saw a public display of just what took place. And it was clear as we covered it every single day on the program that the government fell well short in the testimonies of meeting its high threshold for the emergencies act. And I want to just read it again, right? Cause this is what a national emergency is in the text of the emergency acts itself for the purposes of this act. The national emergency is an urgent and critical situation of a temporary nature, a seriously 
that seriously endangers the lives, health, and safety of Canadians and is of such a proportion or nature as to exceed the capacity or authority of the province to deal with it, or B, seriously threatens the ability of the government of Canada to preserve the sovereignty, security, and territorial integrity of Canada and that cannot be effectively dealt with under any other Canadian law. So when we're hearing reports, Andrew, from CSIS, from the, the officials there saying, oh, yeah, under the CSIS Act, uh, we clear the, the protests clearly did not meet the thresholds for um, uh, <laughs> for a threat to Canadian sovereignty, security and ter territorial authority. And when we hear from the OPP itself that there was no. Um, real substantial violence or anything threat to uh, lives of Canadian citizens. When we're hearing all this expert testimony that is saying, well, yes, no, 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 it doesn't seem like the invocation of the Emergency Act was required, especially considering uh, the fact that the OPS, the, the Ottawa Police Service, the OPP, the Ontario Police uh, uh, service and then the RCMP had just February 13th developed a plan to end the protests and to disperse the protests that then the Emergencies Act was invoked the day after that right um, that they couldn't even implement that plan that Trudeau said didn't go far enough but it had to admit that he didn't actually read the plan itself um, and that that Brendan Brenda Lucky, who's now disgraced and and uh, you know retire, she resigned. Um, she said she was confident in the plan. So law enforcement at all three levels: the OPS, the OPP, the RCMP. Hey, we have tools in our disposal to disperse this um, disperse this occupation, if you even want to call it that. So that would suggest, Andrew, that. They had the ability to deal with the blockades and the events under other Canadian laws. So if that's the predicate, if that's the threshold that you have to meet to invoke this act, how could Rouleau possibly mm -hmm. come to the conclusion that he yeah, anyway Anyone who was watching our show during the time of the inquiry, every every episode we were covering, we were doing a detailed day by day analysis of the different exactly. testimonies. So I, I just really quickly, I wrote an article for Christian Week after the hearings were done, as they were still you know <laughs> coming out with their final report. So I just want to touch on a few of the actual instances during the hearings mm -hmm. where we can see what was going on. So uh, just, yeah. just a few he here. reached the different conclusion than you yes. did. <laughs> yes, he did. He did. Yeah. I'm also not a liberal appointed judge yeah. um, in, in fairness. So on day seven of the inquiry, Chief Superintendent Carson Party, one of the most senior OPP officers involved in the policing effort during the Freedom Convoy, told commission lawyers that officers, quote, did not need the Emergencies Act there was a solution and we reached that solution. In my humble opinion, we would have reached the same conclusion with the plan that we had without the act, close quote. On day 21, 
Ontario Deputy Solicitor General Mario Di Tommaso was asked if he had public safety concerns about what was happening in Ottawa. He said, quote, no, I was still not seeing any significant serious violent crime concerns at all. I thought that the provincial emergency declaration and the orders that flowed from them were sufficient to assist the police in resolving both Ottawa and Windsor, close quote. On day 22, a document from the Director of Canadian Security Intelligence Service, that's CSIS, David Vigneault, told the federal cabinet, quote, at no point did CSIS assess that the protests in Ottawa or elsewhere constituted a threat to national security as defined by Section 2 of the CSIS Act, Close quote. On day 24, Internal Statistics Canada documents revealed, quote, overall, the blocked border crossings appear to have had little impact on the aggregate values of Canadian imports and exports. Close quote. On day 26, testimony revealed that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau invoked the act as per the advice of the clerk of the Privy Council, Janice Charest, and not based on a detailed threat assessment of the Freedom Convoy by law enforcement authorities. On day 38, Commission Counsel asked Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino, quote, were you aware that it had been concluded that Section 2 of the CSIS Act was not met? Close quote. Mendicino replied, quote, yes, I was aware that CSIS had concluded that Section 2 under the CSIS Act was not met, I was aware of that fact, close quote. And finally, on day 31, this is the last day of public testimony, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was asked about the evidence from Commissioner Lucky of the RCMP that she had signed off on a plan to enforce and remove the protesters from Ottawa on February 13th, a plan in which she placed her confidence. When asked if this was a plan that Trudeau actually read himself, he responded, quote, I did not see it myself. There it is. You have <laughs> all mean, of these high ranking yeah. police, security, safety officials, mm -hmm. many of whom were on the ground dealing with the actual convoy and the officers and the protesters all saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. There was no viable threat. There was no threat to national security. It wasn't, it, 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 there was, it wasn't the need for it. And on top of it, we had it under control. We had a plan. We were executing. We did not need the act, period, which is which, why which is I thought that this that was it done over game over. But, but you and I, despite that analysis, we always said we thought the outcome of this commission would be what yep. it was. This was a kangaroo court. Why? Court. Why? Yeah. Because we understood the nature, the political nature to what was going on in this that that Rouleau, despite this appearance of neutrality and um, objectivity, he bent the objective standard of the threshold that needed to be met for the emergency act to the subjective will right. of he 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 heightened the the subjective testimony of ottawa citizens of political actors that would agree with the government and their action over the expert testimonies of those officials that you that you talked about over and over and over again he took his feelings at the end of the day we said it was feelings over objective fact 
And the sad part is that that maintained to the conclusion of the commission, because essentially what Rouleau did at the end was he had a subjective feeling in his heart of hearts that the government met the threshold of the emergency act, despite the fact that the objective data that we have would point to the exact opposite conclusion. Now, I appreciate this this uh, paragraph from the National Post. Uh, we'll link in the descriptions below here. It says, to be fair to Rouleau, he knew he was caught between a rock and a hard place, failed to make a finding and be accused of ducking, or make a finding and get pilloried for stepping outside of his mandate. In the end, he decided to split the difference while finding that the government met the high threshold required based off of his subjective feelings, right? Not the actual text there because he's a liberal judge who reads into law, doesn't actually interpret the actual laws. He noted he did not come to this conclusion easily and did not consider the factual basis to be overwhelming, as we've already seen, while allowing that there is significant strength of argument against reaching the conclusion so again the the benefit of the doubt is given to the government over the citizens and what did he use over and over again if you read the commission he used the limitations clause you think you have that right you don't really have that right we're going to yep. show deference to these political actors it can these be reasonably officials. demonstrated and adjust in order and, blah blah and even, blah even then with the oaks test there's really good legal arguments to say that it doesn't even come close to meeting the threshold of the Oaks test, right? Because, Anyways, it's totally absurd. And we have to understand the thing that it is pointed over again that created this organic protest movement. We can't forget this in the history. It was the government changing, heightening the restrictions placed on truckers uh, throughout the pandemic We've been coming over the border for the first year uh, and a half no problem they were during, essential during, during essential wild workers type back and forth and and, yep. and delta the, no the, problem the worst there. waves of the pandemic the these truckers were coming and going without issue and it's and well by our government they were praised by our elected yes, officials and it's, it's being well heroes. yes it's well after that where where we have you know, supposed vaccines that are going to help stop the spread. It's it, well, we're outside of Delta. We're we're already dealing with uh, you know the beginnings of Omicron. You know, um, it's after the worst of the pandemic that the government decided to change its policies to threaten the the job security, the 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 um, the supply lines, all those things by invoking a vaccine mandate on cross-border travel for, yes, even truckers who were exempted from that for the majority of the height of the 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 um, what they the did pandemic. with all their heroes. That's what they did with the nurses who were heroes. Yep. Oh, sorry, now you got to get the jab. Now you're <laughs> yeah. you've gone from we, being a hero serving yeah. at the worst part of the pandemic, supposedly, yeah. to now being a selfish conspiracy theorist yeah. because you won't let us put experimental Cause, medicine cause we, in you. Because we bought a bunch of these uh, vaccines from our friends, and now we got to use them. <laughs> I really quickly want to just touch on the whole subjective objective thing because our, yes. our audience might be thinking, "What's that about?" Let me. Mm -hmm. I, I want to give an analogy here to help you understand where Justice Rouleau's decision comes from. 
So th this would be the analogy. Suppose my child comes up to me in the middle of the night and says, Dad, there's a monster in my closet and I'm scared. I can't sleep. I'm, I'm shaking. I'm, I, I'm having nightmares. There's a monster in my closet. Um, you need to go set my closet on fire and kill him. Kill the monster by setting it on fire. And I say, hold on. Let me go. Let me go look inside the closet here. Let's see what's going on. And so I come into my child's bedroom. I turn on the light. I bring my flashlight. I open up the closet door. I rifle through the clothes and the toys and everything. And I show my son clearly, objectively, there is no monster in your closet. We can see here all the evidence supports it. You don't see it. You don't hear it. I've moved everything out of the way. The lights are on. There is no monster. I'm not going to set your closet on fire. And then my son says, no, 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 but I, I am scared. I feel scared. I believe with all of my heart there is a monster in the closet, and I'm convinced of it. Daddy, set my closet on fire. In this analogy, the federal government is the child. Justice Rouleau, in a sense, is the dad who's trying to, here's the evidence that's been weighed. And the invoking of the Emergencies Act is setting the closet on fire. Where our federal government, despite the overwhelming objective evidence that there was no threat and the invoking of the act wasn't needed, but because, according to Justice Rouleau, but they really were scared and they really were afraid that it could get violent and they really believed it was a violent occupation, yeah, it's okay that they set the closet on fire. That's what it's come to, that the, yeah. the, the subjective belief of the federal government that it could be violent, which, mm -hmm. listen, between me, me you and me and our audience, they didn't actually believe that anyways. No. They just <laughs> wanted to set the closet yeah. on fire. That yeah, was it. They, they didn't believe that there was danger. That's just what they told us. That was the mm -hmm. spin because yeah. they wanted to crush Canadians who would mm -hmm. dare be a dissenting voice uh, mm -hmm. against the tyrannical overreach and mandates of our of our state yeah and that's that's something that jumps out to me and just my going through it as far as i've been able to go through andrew is there's not a lot of there there there's a lot of talk about potential threats right. perceived harms worries about potential ex escalation but at every point the objective on the ground data actually dispels that kind those kind of concerns so again it's but that's critical theory this is this is <laughs> yes this is this, this is the, neo the greatest Marxist conspiracy theory. theory ever yeah it's 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 that it doesn't matter what you actually see mm -hmm. the issue is and, and this is at the heart of deconstruction right the heart of mm -hmm. the heart of deconstructionism coming out of france is mm -hmm. and the heart of critical theory is not what does the book actually say it's yeah. what does the author mean or imply by what he doesn't say between the lines? That's critical yes. theory. It's a, and that becomes critical race theory, critical, critical gender theory, critical whatever theory. Mm -hmm. It's not so much what was, but what, what were the, the felt experiences and the subjective mm -hmm. reality and what wasn't actually there? Yeah. That's the real issue, not, you can, not the truth. You can actually see, so it's easy if you know what to look for when you know the Marxist, Gnostic, Hermetic religion and their 
buzzwords. When you know what to look for, when you understand their philosophy, you can see that clearly in Rouleau's decision because he talks about marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. He talks about... Um, Do you how we started the video? We didn't play the clip. We didn't play the clip, but at the very start of him actually saying, he's like, I want to acknowledge that this meeting is being held upon the historic land of this indigenous group. Like he starts off. So that's post-colonial theory. Exactly. By that's, saying we're on stolen land, just so we yeah. get it out of the way. I want to make sure every See, child it, matters. We're on stolen land. Yeah. You need it, to play that card. No, exactly. Exactly. So he presupposes neo-Marxist, uh, cultural Marxist theories throughout his judgments and you can see that in praxis by him doing a post-colonial uh piece of praxis which is you know doing the land acknowledgement so that's the thing that people have to understand this has so been imbibed by canadian culture and especially elites in in every sphere and in every institution that it just comes out their fingertips like this this is an absurd decision that really should I mean, he's a retired judge sitting in on the commission. There's not a lot of legal standing, all those things, whatever. It's more of a political process than a legal process. With all, I mean, his legacy, if we live in a sane society, will be tarnished forever for the folly of this decision. And him trying to kind of massage the outcome of the situation it doesn't actually it doesn't make him look more measured it actually no, it makes doesn't. him look more ridiculous it's like because... what trudeau said in the clip we didn't we didn't want to it's like let's be clear we didn't want to i'm like who believes that yeah, That's, no, no. Exactly. we don't actually believe you exactly. when you say that we don't all believe right. you Jeffrey all right andrew uh we gotta move on yeah, but because we're, 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 we're gonna do some concluding thoughts toward the end we have some we have some yes. friends we need to talk to yes we do well. help us to just digest this we yeah. have a lot of thoughts a lot yeah. of feelings but before yeah. but before we before we bring in our first <laughs> friend on the episode we have to talk about some other friends at rocklink investment partners Here's a question. Are you comfortable speaking with your financial advisor about your faith and how your investments should align with biblical principles and truth? Or are you ridiculed for expressing your beliefs and concerns with the direction of our country? We've been talking about our friends at Rocklink Investment Partners for a while now, and one of the main reasons we recommend their service to our audience is that they share our Christian faith and worldview. At Rocklink, they're concerned with the same issues that we are, they're willing to have an open and honest conversation with you to put you on the right track to achieve your goals while mitigating many of the risks surrounding us. Ask yourself, are you getting that level of service and alignment with your current financial institution, or are you just another brick in the woke rainbow wall? Email Rocklink, info at rocklink.com or visit them at www.rocklink.com. That's link with the C. And when you reach out to them, oh, I'm sure they have a few things to say about the final report of the Public Order Emergency Commission. And you'll be pleasantly surprised to know that they probably agree with your assessment and are equally as disappointed with what this means for the future of our country and where we are right now. Andrew, there's so much to digest when it comes to this final report. So to help us 
respond to the findings, the, the, the final report of the POEC and make sense of what's going on. We want to bring a friend of the show on, uh, and that friend is our friend Tabitha Ewart. Uh, Tabitha has a law degree from the University of British Columbia and was called to the Bar of Ontario in 2018. Until recently, she worked for a political action organization and is now in a private practice. She lived in Ottawa at the time of the convoy, and her office was surrounded by trucks. Every day she would walk among the convoy to observe and talk to the people. Let's bring Tabitha in now. Uh, Tabitha, you uh, you have been a watchdog. Um, you have been someone who covered the, the, the events thoroughly and um, you have some on-the-ground experience coupled with your legal knowledge, and that's why we wanted to have you on the program. So thank you so much for coming on and discussing these very important things with us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was being able to live in Ottawa during the convoy was something I could have never predicted would have been such a big moment, I think, in Canadian history and in my life personally. So I'm, I'm always happy to talk about it. So we want to kind of, before we get into the discussion about the report with you, which I know you can give us some very good insight on, we just wanted to play a quick clip of our deputy prime fascist, as Andrew likes to call her, Christia Freeland, uh, and her discussion on the decision to freeze bank accounts um, uh, surrounding the convoy. And this is what she, she had to say for herself. Um, yeah, so look, when it comes to the financial measures, I think the most important thing uh, to start with is, as the Prime Minister just said, Justice Rouleau's conclusion, which was, and I'm going to read it, um, it was a powerful tool to discourage participation and to incentivize protesters to leave. I am satisfied that it played a meaningful role in shrinking the footprint of the protests and in doing so made a meaningful contribution to resolving the public order emergency. That is his broad conclusion on the economic measures. It's what we believed at the time and I'm really glad that having looked at this so carefully, Justice Rouleau agrees. I would also add that what was so important for us in putting in place these economic measures was our overriding objective, of course, was to end the illegal blockades and occupation. It was to do so without violence, without anyone being hurt. And the economic measures were a tool that really helped make that happen. So as someone who was on the ground, Tabitha, maybe you could give us some perspective, uh, not only on the situation, but you can also uh, give us your thoughts on uh, Deputy Prime Minister uh, Chrystia Freeland's comments there as well. I, I just think she, she oh, wow, that, that's a lot to go through in, in, a, in a quick moment like that. But what, what she has never admitted, what they've never faced, and, and what I haven't seen come out in the report at all, I, I've only read, um, I'm, I'm making my way through the report right now, but the, the ramifications of going after the bank accounts, of freezing assets, 
were dramatic. Like there were runs on the banks in Canada. It undermined the confidence in Canada's financial institutions. And and that actually had a really dramatic impact far beyond the convoy. Like um, my, my dad is a businessman and he talked about, you know, that he, he knew people in the business world who, who didn't care about COVID restrictions, didn't care about the convoy. But when they eroded the trust of the financial institutions, that's when they started talking about, do we need to get out of Canada? Because if the government can just decide that political opponents um, can be gone after by by freezing their assets, by you know going to the banks, that creates a level of uncertainty that that is going to be really hard for Canada to overcome in the future. And the uh, the claim that by doing so, they were able to, and their goal was to avoid violence or things be, you know things <laughs> becoming violent um I, I would i mean clearly violence was coming from one side so if that was the goal if the goal in freezing the bank accounts was so that it wouldn't have to turn violent then in many this is just another among many ways when our federal government completely failed at their job and fumbled the ball over and over again and andrew the interesting point i know before we got on we were just talking about this um there was a lot of talk about foreign interference being a very strong predicate for the invocation of the Emergency Act. But in going through um, the commission report itself, the only foreign interference that I could really see that was substantial was that of the pressure being put on our federal officials starting February 9th with the blockade at uh, Windsor and the Ambassador Bridge, because it's at that point where American officials uh, like Pete Buttigieg, um, uh, Steve, uh, uh, Deese, who's the Brian Deese, who's the head economic advisor to uh, to Joe Biden, they start amping up the pressure on our federal officials. It's in that context that two days later, three days later, um, Freeland calls an emergency meeting of all the head executives in the in in the big banks in Canada, and they come up with their strategy, their plan on how to deal with this situation. And she uses the the fact that the Biden administration was putting pressure on Freeland and Trudeau saying, hey, this could really affect our relationship between the United States and, and Canada as it pertains to our economic relationship, that that is really what pushed. It wasn't anything that was happening on the ground. None, actually, people were starting to disperse. Blockades were being disrupted at this point you know all these things were actually going to a more peaceful resolution of the situation but it was this these economic considerations that really put the pressure on the feds uh so i thought that was just really interesting that, that the real foreign interference was not this support supposed russian disinformation or anything like that it was actual pressure being placed by the biden executive branch on the Canadian federal government that led them to take these drastic steps, despite what was happening on the ground. Um, that was really interesting to me anyways. Uh, well, you, you got to get the timeline right on that. That's really important. Yeah. The Windsor border blockade was, uh, was removed before the emergency powers got called. Oh, yes, the emergency for sure. powers had nothing to do 
with the blockades at the border. It had everything to do with the convoy in Ottawa. And so you might you know, have different thoughts about the, the blockade at the border than you do with the convoy of Ottawa. They're completely separate protests, very different in nature and in character and what they're trying to accomplish. The convoy came to Ottawa because that is the seat of our government. That is yeah. where we are supposed to be able to, to express our concerns, to, to tell our government. If you believe there's any sort of communication between the government and the people, it needs to take place in Ottawa. And it yeah. does. When I lived in Ottawa, so I lived in Ottawa for about five years, on any given Tuesday, you would have some sort of protest. I used to joke with my colleagues. That's kind of how I knew what countries were at war, because, you know, there would be a protest about, uh, you know, from, from the Libyans, from the Iranians, from, you know, uh, the Fulangang. Like there were so many protests that happened on a regular basis because Ottawa is the place where those protests are supposed to happen. The convoy very appropriately showed up in Ottawa. Um, and I just think that's that's drastically understated. And then just one more note, um, because I'm passionate about this stuff. Um, you, you talked about peaceful there, and there's actually a line in the report that said, you know, that the protests kept peaceful. And then it goes, well, at least not physically violent, right? Because their idea of peace is not the absence of physical violence. Their idea of peace is an ideological conformity to, to a narrative, to an idea, and, and in the very existence of people who, you know, whether correctly or incorrectly thought things about the vaccine, um, you know, that it was dangerous or that it was uh, experimental or whatnot, the very fact that those people existed was a danger to the peace. Um, and that's just that's just a, a completely, you know, totalitarian view of, of what peace actually means. Mm -hmm. This was something that the police commissioner brought up during the inquiry was what is violence? And he was he was pressed on. Was it actual real physical violence or was it people that they felt that it was violent, a subjective understanding of violence, which is a concerning part of the report. As as we read earlier in the episode, the commissioner said, Justice Rouleau said that he believes that it met both the subjective and the objective belief that there was a threat that it was credible. Well, that's that's pretty scary stuff that they could say, oh, it was subjectively. They really if they really, really believe it, if you really, really believe it, then there's actually a threat. Um, what are your Tabitha? Give us some thoughts on so you, you talked about that, but give us some of your other thoughts on what you've read so far in the report. Um, yeah, that, that, that's particularly concerning or that has struck you as being something that we need to talk about that needs to be addressed in this final report. Yeah, I, I think I think the convoy is a really complicated topic. Like, so uh, living through it in those weeks was quite was quite an experience. And, and I do remember kind of getting to a point near the end of how does this end? What, what does an end to the convoy look like? Because at that point, Trudeau had dug in his heels. He was not going to come and talk to the truckers. He was not going to give in. And politically, it, it would have been the end of his career. Um, maybe that, that, I mean, that is a good thing. But but that would have, that was the situation. He backed into a corner and he had no choice but to dig his heels in. Um, and then, and of course, the the trucker had no choice but to be like, we came here for a reason and we want to, you know, and they kept the character of it very peaceful, very good. I, I stand by the character of the convoy 100%. So I, I'm sympathetic to the, you know, the police and to those in charge of, well, what are we supposed to do? Are we just supposed to live with trucks in Ottawa for, for all eternity? Like, how do we end this? Um, and and I think that's, um, I think that's, that was a really difficult question. And it's one that I just... 
I'm not seeing the report really struggle with, which how much of the responsibility was on Trudeau for, for his reaction from the very beginning. I mean, uh, he does kind of talk about the unfortunate nature of Justin Trudeau's comments, but I mean, you really have to go back to the 2021 election and him, you know, making that election be a war against the unvaccinated. And then his comments as the convoy came in, you know, the fringe minority comments that got well publicized. But every step of the way, if Trudeau had come and talked to the truckers, I think we would have had a very different reaction. I do think the truckers would have left. At least some of them would have left if he just came and talked to them. And the report doesn't really deal with that. What they do say is that the Alberta protests, that they tried to talk to them and that that didn't work. But again, that's a different protest than what was happening in Ottawa. So you just, how does this resolve? Well, put some of that responsibility on the government, not just on the truckers. Well, and and that is an extraordinarily important point because in going through the executive summary, Tabitha, it's interesting that they point out in on February 11th that they actually had a really good negotiation, what they put in brackets as a breakthrough with the convoy in Ottawa, that they had come to Tom Marazzo, a friend of the program, led the discussions. They had come to an understanding that they were going to shrink the size of the protest and that they were going to move um, the trucks to even closer to parliament in kind of a easier to manage situation on Wellington and everything. And literally a day later, they removed 106 vehicles in good faith because Jim Watson, Mayor Jim Watson of Ottawa, agreed to come to the table. That was part of the agreement. So you actually have, far from the convoy being unreasonable in their demands, you actually have um, evidence that had the government ever came to the table in a diplomatic way, had they ever wanted to hear the concerns of Canadian citizens, that you actually have evidence that the convoy would have dispersed. They came for a reason, um, like you said, because of political calculations. Our federal government never came to the table, never wanted to have these discussions, never had bona fide, good faith um, commitment to resolving the issues. But immediately, even before the convoy ever arrived in Ottawa, they used attack lines, they used inflammatory language to heighten the situation. So much so that Rouleau in the in the report has to acknowledge that, yes, there was a lot of untrue things swirling in, in the legacy media as it pertains to the convoy. And yes, the government did a lot of damage in escalating the situation. And realistically, the despite his conclusion, he even admits that there was so much incompetence. Uh, in, in in all the various levels of government that that really heightened the situation to the point where the EA was even remotely plausible to be considered. So I think that's those are important things to cons consider as well. Yeah, I, I think another I, like the number one thing that I talk about when I talk about the convoy is you have to understand Ottawa. Ottawa is a mm -hmm. is a very unique city. Ottawa has about a million people and they are scattered over a sprawling area. I, I don't remember how big it is, but basically there was a bunch of little cities that all amalgamated into one city. So 
it's a million people, but it's not a million people tightly together. The downtown core of Ottawa. So I, I my office at the time was three blocks from Parliament. Um, I lived, you know, what is definitely considered outside of downtown. And it took me about 15 minutes to drive into work, right? So we're, we're talking about a downtown core that is actually really small. So A, if, if all the trucks did just descend on Ottawa, like it could have, it could have easily shut it down. But that's not what happened. What happened was the trucks were largely along Wellington Street and then some of the strides, side streets, Kent, Metcalf, um, uh, all, all the way around there. I could always drive into work. I never had an issue. My, my office was three blocks away from Parliament and I never had an issue of driving into work. The only time I had any issues is I had a, a police stop uh, in the last days where I had to talk to a cop before I got to my office. The, the trucks never blocked access. Uh, to those buildings. Now, there were certain areas that it was harder to get to, uh, but I don't know of any area where it was impossible to get to um, other than Parliament itself. But even then, they kept a line open on Wellington because of emergency vehicle use. Um, so when people talk about the convoy, you know, shutting down the city of Ottawa, it, it not not really in the sense that you could drive around, you could get around, businesses could be open. And, and um, what was very interesting at the time was uh, there was restaurants like Tim Hortons and Subway got the best business of their lives um, because they, they didn't require the vaccine passport and, um, and, and so people could go in there. It was the sit-down restaurants that still were uh, legally required to do the vaccine passport. Those restaurants lost a ton of business because nobody would come downtown because of the convoy and the convoy couldn't go to those restaurants. Um, the other big thing with the businesses is the Rideau Mall is a big mall in Ottawa and it shut down. Um, I'm sympathetic to, you know, you have a big protest outside. Uh, are you worried about safety? I, th I think they could have opened at some point during the convoy and I think they would have done a lot of business. The hotels did a ton of business. So Ottawa in the downtown would have had different experiences with it, uh, depending on you know where you worked, what you did, um, but it, it didn't shut Ottawa down. That's not exactly accurate to say. Yeah, yeah. No, shout out, shout out to sure. Three Brothers Shawarma, by the way, on Rideau <laughs> Street that stayed open the whole time. I remember being there during the convoy inside Three Brothers and they were they had music on and people were dancing and jumping maskless without showing their papers. So <laughs> if you're in Ottawa and you love your country, please, please go get go go eat at Three Brothers Shawarma. They have a bunch of locations. Uh, it's interesting you point out the businesses because I know a number of businesses. There were some online groups in they closed down in solidarity against the truckers. So they made it a point to say so much so do we despise this protest that we're going to close our business in solidarity, which is something that the legacy media didn't cover. It also came out during the, the hearings and the inquiries that it was the Ottawa police services that shut down streets. They're the ones that made it so that streets couldn't be accessed. There was always a vein available for emergency vehicles. Uh, so you're right for people who are actually there on the ground, trying to understand what was going on. It's a much different picture than what we've been told, both in legacy media and even what they're trying to communicate through this final report. It, it wasn't like that at all, really. Yeah. That being said, the honking, the honking was a lot. They were asked, right? When they were, they when they, when they oh, were yeah. pressed, oh, they oh, said, okay, fine, we're not going to do it, right? They agreed. Yeah, I, I had to work. I was in court like the, the first couple of days of the convoy of the week and uh, I had eight hours of honking and I had a headache. But yeah, I think it's really important to note that when the court gave the injunction, 
the truckers stopped. Yeah. Um, the truckers, and that's the thing is like, there's a lot of like potential for violence or potential for things to go mm-hmm. wrong. But we have to talk about what evidence we actually have, which the evidence we actually have, like you were pointing out, Matt, was them coming to the table and being reasonable with the city. We have the evidence of any time there was any allegation of wrongdoing, they reacted to put it right. When there, when there was there was the uh, the tomb of the unknown soldier, they they set up a guard to make sure no one was doing dumb stuff there. When someone said that their Terry Fox, you know, had a Canadian flag on him, they made sure that he was kept uh, the statue was preserved. When the homeless shelter said that they were harassed, they flooded the homeless shelter so that the homeless shelter had to turn away food. Um, like this is the character of the convoy. When the injunction came, they stopped honking. Like you can't like at what point do you start to say like oh the potential for this is matched up with the overwhelming body of evidence of what was actually going on on the streets and and then of course I also need to say like what was else was going on was every morning we were meeting in Parliament Hill and singing hymns and praying yep. that was the character of mm-hmm. this protest I, I um, yep that's right groups on and not just not just like there were multiple groups mm-hmm. I have videos of of yeah. of us standing around in a circle singing hymns and praying for all of this and that was happening every day yeah uh, it's it's very and, different than what we're being told and that comes out in the report when you read it rulo's struggling with this tension he kind of wants to make it seem like it's a violent right wing extremist protest but he he admits over and over and over and over again that it's an organic protest that there was a bunch of different people who were all there for various different reasons. And the central concern of people, it wasn't to overthrow the government of Canada. That's idiotic. He, he doesn't even claim that, but it was overwhelming concern with the present state of civil liberties in Canada, as it pertains to the continuing COVID lockdowns and mandates. And Tabitha, we were talking before we got on, you were talking about just some of the presuppositional problems with the report itself, that it never ever thinks for a second that that those could have been inappropriate breaches of Canadian freedom. So maybe you can tease that out a little bit for our listeners. Yeah, I, I would say that on the part of many in the convoy, their political solutions were, let's say, not sophisticated. Um, they, they're, you know, the MOU was well taught, you know, well publicized and talked about. Uh, is is not really a document that makes any sense legally or politically. Um, but I think underrated is the fact that they pulled that MOU during the convoy. That was not what the convoy stood for. Um, and there were just many who wanted to decide that's what the convoy stood for. Um, so so on, on that side, you know, you have some issues, but then you go to the other side and you read through this report and you see just this, this overwhelming like desire to defend the lockdowns. Um, and, and this is something like, cause I've, I've d- uh, done some work in the past on different, you know, of the uh, church lockdown cases. And, and, and what I'm looking for from the courts right now is just, can you even admit that it's possible for the government to have gone too far or to have done something incorrectly, to have not considered religious freedom or not considered the, you know, the right to protest. And, and you see a very much a reluctance on the part of the courts, um, which, you know, given that this is a retired judge, I think is all part and parcel of a reluctance to even criticize anything about the restrictions. And so at one point, 
in the report, he, he, he's kind of getting that like, okay, people did have legitimate hardships during COVID, you know, and, and there, and then he says like, there were the rules that were sometimes, you know, hard to understand, but then he puts right in brackets right away. Not that there was anything wrong with the rules. The rules were fine. It was just people's reactions to them that caused a problem. And, and that really just bleeds to the whole thing of it's, it. We can never put the mirror on the government. We can never put the mirror on Justin Trudeau or on the pr premiers across this country who, who, who pursued devastating policies that, that wrecked our economy, that, that wrecked havoc on the mental health of Canadians, that trampled on civil liberties, that trampled on the, on the ability for the church to publicly gather and worship. We can never put a mirror up to them and say, hey, you've done something wrong. The mirror only goes at the convoy and says, you know, there was, you know, that someone danced on the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. That's the only focus and the only criticism. And that's so a this, huge problem. This this leads well into this question that we want to ask you, Tabitha. And you're, you're not a prophet nor the daughter of a prophet. We know that. <laughs> so, or maybe, maybe, maybe we don't. I don't know how you would self-identify. But I'm going to say you are neither a prophet nor the daughter of a prophet. What does all of this mean going forward? What does this mean for our country and, and I guess in, in two kind of two sides to that question, one would be what is what about this is concerning regarding the future of our country? And then if you were to put all your chips on red, what do you think this will actually look like now, whether it's legally, legislatively, socially? What, what is this going to what will this mean for our country and what is concerning about what this will mean for our country? I, I think one of the main issues in Canada um, right now is is that two people are looking at the same event, are looking at the convoy, and they're just seeing drastically different things. Um, you know, and, and that was one of the reasons why I was so vocal when the convoy was happening is because I, I needed people to see what was actually going on in Ottawa. Because, you know, the media looks at it and they say dangerous and they say January 6th and, you know, scary words, which did not match the reality on the ground. And, and so one of the things that I, I've I said this, I said this even to the truckers that I, I had friendships with on, on the last night, and I, I said it again to other friends repeatedly. I really think the number one thing that we need to be doing in order to right this ship is to be talking to those who disagree with us. And that's a very difficult thing because there is such antagonism. But if we don't bridge that gap, if we don't show them what we see, then they are never going to see it. And they're going to elect Justin Trudeau again. And, and this, you know, who knows what happens from here on out. But I, I really think the where my optimism lies for this country is not in this report. It's not in Parliament. Um, it's not even in Pierre Polyev. My optimism is coming from we had more people wake up because of the emergency powers. We had more people wake up in COVID and say, wait a second, politics matters. We need to be doing something. And that I think is where the, the real power and the real change can happen. If, if they cannot clamp down on the narrative like they did during covid um and they can and they and they can't control the way people view the world then they will lose their power and so that's where a lot of my optimism will lie i i don't i'm not a fortune teller i'm not going to say what's going to go on from here but that's where my optimism is mm -hmm. so Tabitha, the, the kind of your comments there and the the previous question before bring a question to my mind. Uh, we talked to uh, lawyer Bruce party on, on the mm -hmm. show. And I think it gets to what you're talking about. This, this insane bending over backwards to show deference to political officials 
in opposition to Canadian civil rights. And Bruce was talking about in the British common law tradition, that was the absolute opposite is it was the judges and the legal professionals who were so zealous to protect Canadian rights that you didn't even need a written constitution, but they were going to stand so firmly for the rights of the everyday citizen that they were going to be in opposition, uh, you know, a combative opposition to the predilections of government and government overreach, but how that the mentality has totally switched in in our legal system where even on the thinnest of evidence, right? You, you know, the fact that Rulo can say, well, reasonable people could come to a completely different conclusion. You know, the facts of, of the case don't really overwhelmingly justify the invocations of the act, but I say that they do, even though they don't meet the actual legal standards as anybody who can just read would, would understand. So I, maybe you could talk about the precedence of this decision because he he on the thinnest grounds possible said that the this invocation of the never before used emergencies act was justified by trudeau the trudeau regime despite the evidence on the ground despite the fact that the blockades were dispersed before its invocation despite the fact that people were clearing out of ottawa there was there was good faith negotiations happening the the rcmp literally just had a plan with the opp and ops put in place on february 13th that they were going to uh, <laughs> act upon Despite all of that, this president has been set in this case that damned be the facts, the government was right in doing this. Does this not make it easier logically in the long run for the government to invoke the EA on those really, really thin lines? And is that not very dangerous to Canadian civil liberties? Uh, well, just start off with this isn't a legal decision. So like mm -hmm. precedent in the legal sense doesn't really apply. I just want to be sorry, the lawyer. Okay. Needs to be yes, no, details. that's good. Um, uh, but uh, in terms of like, so it, I, I, I think it's got to be a political calculation for anyone in the future. And and that's, again, why I think it's so important that the people are speaking out against this, that, that there is a political backlash, which I think there was. I mean, the fact that Trudeau had to take back the Emergencies Act before it got voted on in the Senate, I think he was worried about how that vote was going to go in the Senate. I, I don't think it was a foregone conclusion that that he had control there. Um, so I, I think they're, you know, what, whether they'll do it again um, or not, I think largely depends on the backlash they face this time. And, and I'm I'm less concerned about an inquiry report than I am about, you know, do you remember that next time there's an election? Do you remember this is what that government did? Um, because I, I think otherwise, if it does become easy, um, if it does become every time there's a political protest, you know, the government can just start freezing bank accounts, um, then Canada's stability is 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 not going to last very long. Um, like even just see the, the unrest around the world, even with the sanctions being done against the Russian oligarchs, like these, the, when you mess with, with the financial security we have, you create a lot of instability and that can have humongous ramifications um, across the world. And that's, again, just going back to Freeland's comments at the beginning. She's like, oh, we needed to do it to go after this group. Well, did you consider the cost? Did you consider what you were doing to Canada's economic security? Um, because to me, it doesn't look like they did. And, and I am I, more concerned about that than I am about them going after the individual truckers.
if if your question is does our federal government make wise decisions <laughs> and are they are they considerate of the economic consequences and fallout of their decisions the answer is a definitive no i mean that <laughs> that's clear no they're not they're not wise with their money or with mm -hmm. our money and they don't particularly care about the consequences of it those are my words not tabitha's those are i'll i'll, I'll own that well, she might feel the same way but i'll but i'll, I'll own it it's um, it's also interesting andrew that our government can take measures unforeseen in, in human history to stop the spread of a, a virus that just absolutely destroys the Canadian economy and leads to all these problems. That's apparently justified and not a huge issue. But the second that Canadian citizens push back against government overreach, all of a sudden they're very concerned urgently concerned about what that will do to the GDP. I think it was all, it was all the gross, French toast. It yeah. was all the French toast yeah. that they were cooking in the streets of Ottawa. Yeah. It was all the Domino's pizza, all the free hats and hand warmers. Oh, that was man. the problem. Tabitha, oh. thank you so much for, uh, for joining us on the dispatch. Your insight and your thoughts are helpful. And I'm sure um, are, are, are beneficial to our audiences. Mm -hmm. We're all trying to make sense of, this report and reflecting back on the events of this last year. So we're, uh, we're thankful that you've taken the time to join us today. Yeah. Thanks for having me.